Section five of Members of the Family by Owen Wister. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter four Timberline It was a yellow poster, still wet with the rain. Against the wet dark boards of the shed on which it was pasted, its color glared like a patch of flame. A monstrous thunderstorm had left all space dumb and bruised, as it were, with the heavy blows of its noise. Outside the station, in the washed fresh air, I sat waiting, staring idly at the poster. The damp seemed to make the yellow paper yellower, the black letters blacker. A dollar sign, figures and zeros, exclamation points, and the two blackest words of all, reward and murder were what stood out of the yellow. Reward and murder had been printed big and could be seen far. Two feet away, on the same shed, was another poster, white, concerning some stallion, his place of residence, and the fee for his service. This also I had read, with equal inattention and idleness, but my eyes had been drawn to the yellow spot and held by it. Not by its news. The news was now old, since at every cabin and station dotted along our lonely road the same poster had appeared. They had discussed it, and whether he would be caught, and how much money he had got from his victim. At Lost Soldier they knew he had got ten thousand dollars. At Bull Spring they knew he had got twenty. At Crook's Gap it was more like twenty-five, while at Sweetwater Bridge he had got nothing at all. What they did agree about was that he would not be caught. Too much start. Body hadn't been found on Owl Creek for a good many weeks. Funny his friend hadn't turned up. If they'd killed him, why wasn't his body on Owl Creek, too? If he'd got away, why didn't he turn up? Such comments, with many more, were they making at Lost Soldier, Bull Spring, Crook's Gap, and Sweetwater Bridge, and it was not the news on the poster that drew my eye, but its mere yellow vibrations. These, in some way, caught my brain in a net and held it still, so that thinking stopped and I was under a spell, torpid as any plant or sponge. Passive, perhaps, is the truer word for my state. When I was abruptly wakened from this open-eyed sleep, I knew that I had been hearing a song for some time. If that I was where I would be, then should I be where I am not. Here am I where I must be, and where I would be I cannot. It was the neigh of some horse in the stable, loud and sudden, that had burst the shell of my trance, causing thought to start to life again, as if with a leap. There I sat in the wagon, waiting for Scipio Le Moyne to come out of the house. There in my nostrils was the smell of the wet sagebrush and of the wet straw and manure, and there against the gray sky was an after-image of the yellow poster, square, huge, and blue. The smaller print was not reproduced, but reward and murder stood out clear, floating in the air. It moved with my eyes as I turned them to get rid of the annoying vision, and at last slowly dissolved away over the head of the figure sitting on the corral with its back to me, the stock-tender of this stage station. 
It wore out as I listened to his song and looked at him. He sang his song again, and I found that I now knew it by heart. If that I was where I would be, then should I be where I am not. Here am I where I must be, and where I would be I cannot. In the mountains beyond the sagebrush, the thunderstorm was still splitting the dark canyons open with fierce strokes of light. The light seemed close, but it was a long time before its crashes and echoes came to us through the wet air. I could not see the figure's face or that he moved. One boot was twisted between the bars of the corral to hold him steady. Its trodden heel was worn to a slant. From one seat pocket a soiled rag protruded, and through a hole below this a piece of his red shirt or drawers stuck out. A coat, much too large for him, hung from his neck, rather than from his shoulders, and the damp, limp hat that he wore, with its spotted, unraveled hat-band, somehow completed the suggestion that he was not alive at all, but had been tied together and stuffed and set out in joke. Certainly there were no birds here, or crops to frighten birds from. Empty bottles were the only thing that man had sown the desert with at Rongus. These lay everywhere. As the figure sat and repeated its song beneath the still-wrecked and stricken sky, its back and its hat and its voice gave an impression of loneliness, poignant and helpless. A windmill turned and turned and creaked near the corral, adding its note of forlornness to the song. A man put his head out of the house. "'Stop it!' he said and shut the door again. The figure obediently climbed down and went over to the windmill, took hold of the rope hanging from its rudder, and turned the contrivance slowly out of the wind until the wheels ceased revolving. I saw then that he was a boy. The man put his head out of the house, this second time speaking louder. I didn't say stop that. I said stop it. Stop your damned singing. He withdrew his head immediately. The boy, the mild new yellow hair on his face was the unshaven growth of adolescence, stood a long while looking at the door in silence, with eyes and mouth expressing futile injury. Finally he thrust his hands into bunchy pockets and said, I ain't no two-bit man. He watched the door as if daring it to deny this. Then, as nothing happened, he slowly drew his hands from the bunchy pockets, climbed the corral at the spot nearest him, twisted the boot between the bars, and sat as before, only without singing. The cloud and the thunder were farther away, but around us still, from unseen places, roofs and corners, dropped the leavings of the downpour. We faced each other, saying nothing. We had nothing to say. In the east we would have talked but here in the Rocky Mountains an admirable habit of silence was generally observed under such conditions. Thus we sat waiting, I for Scipio to come out of the house with the information he had gone in for, while the boy waited for nothing. Waiting for nothing was stamped plain upon him from head to foot, as it is stamped upon certain figures all the world over. Figures seated in clubs, standing at corners, leaning against railroad stations and boxes of freight, staring out of windows. 
Those in the clubs die at last, and it is mentioned. The others, of course, die too, only it is not mentioned. This boy's eyebrows were insufficient, and his front was as ragged as his back. Presently the same man put his head out of the door. "'You after sheep?' I nodded. "'I could have showed you sheep. Rams, horns as big as your thigh. Bigger than your thigh. That was before tenderfeet came in and spoiled this country. Counted seven thousand on that there butte one morning before breakfast. Seven thousand and twenty-three, if you want exact figures. Sat on this porch and killed sheep whenever I wanted to. Some of em used to come on the roof. Counted eight rams on the roof one morning before breakfast. Quit your staring. This was addressed to the boy on the corral. Why, you're not a-going without another. This convivial question was to Scipio, who now came out of the house and across to me with news of failure. I could have showed you sheep, resumed the man, but I was attending to Scipio. He don't know anything, said Scipio, nor any of em in there. But we haven't got this country rounded up yet. He's just come out of a week of snake fits, and, by the way it looks, he'll enter on another about tomorrow morning. But whiskey can't stop him, Lion. Bad weather, said the man, watching us make ready to continue our long drive. Lots of lightning loose in the air right now. Kind of weather you're liable to see fire on the horns of the stock some night. This sounded like such a promising invention that I encouraged him. We have nothing like that in the East. Hmm, <laughs> guess you've not. Guess you never seen sixteen thousand steers with a light at the end of every horn in the herd. Are they going to catch that man? inquired Scipio, pointing to the yellow poster. Catch him? <laughs> Them? Nah. But I could tell him where he's went. He's went to Idaho. Thought the seventy-six outfit had sold auctioneer, Scipio continued conversationally. That stallion? No. But I could tell him they'd ought to. This was his good-bye to us. He removed himself and his alcoholic omniscience into the house. Wait, I said to Scipio, as he got in and took the reins from me. I'm going to deal some magic to you. Look at that poster. No, not the stallion, the yellow one. Keep looking at it hard. While he obeyed me, I made solemn passes with my hands over his head. I kept it up, and the boy sat on the corral bars, watching stupidly. Now, look anywhere you please. Scipio looked across the corral at the gray sky. A slight stiffening of his figure ensued, and he knit his brows. Then he rubbed a hand over his eyes and looked again. You after sheep? It was the boy sitting on the corral. We paid him no attention. It's about gone, said Scipio, rubbing his eyes again. Did you do that to me? Of course you didn't. What did? I adopted the manner of the professor who lectured on light to me when I was nineteen. The eye being normal in structure and focus, the color of an after-image of the negative variety is complementary to that of the object causing it. If, for instance, a yellow disc, or lozenge in this case, be attentively observed, the yellow perceiving element of the retina become fatigued. Hence, when the mixed rays which constitute white light fall upon that portion of the retina 
which has thus been fatigued, the rays which produce the sensation of yellow will cause less effect than the other rays for which the eye has not been fatigued. Therefore white light to an eye fatigued for yellow will appear blue, blue being yellow's complementary color. Uh, shall I go on? Don't you, Scipio begged. I'd sooner believe you done it to me. I can show you sheep. It was the boy again. We had not noticed him come from the corral to our wagon, by which he now stood. His eyes were now eagerly fixed upon me. As they looked into mine, they seemed almost burning with some sort of appeal. "'Hello, Timberline,' said Scipio, not at all unkindly. "'Still holding your job here? Well, you better stick to it. You're inclined to drift some.' He touched the horses, and we left the boy standing and looking after us, lonely and baffled. But when a joke was born in Scipio, it must out. "'Say, Timberline,' he called back, "'better insure your clothes. You couldn't replace em. "'I'm no two-bit man,' retorted the boy with anger, that pitiful anger which feels a blow but cannot give one. We drove away along the empty stage road with the mountains and the dying storm, in which a piece of setting sun would redly glow and vanish, making our leftward horizon and to our right the great undulations of a world so large as to seem the universe itself. The air was wet still and full of the wet sagebrush smell, and the ground was wet, but it could not be so long in this sandy region. Three hours would see us to the next house, unless we camped short of this upon Broke Axle Creek. "'Why Timberline?' I asked after several miles. "'Well, he came into this country, the long, lanky, innocent kid like you saw him, and he'd always get too tall in the legs for his latest pair of pants. They'd be half up to his knees. So we called him that. Guess he's most forgot his real name. What is his real name?' Oh, I've quite forgot. This much talk did for us for two or three miles more. Must it be yellow? Scipio asked then. Red'll do it too, I answered. Only you see green then, I think. And there are others. Hmm, observed Scipio. Most as queer as chemistry. Do you know chemistry? Why, what do you know? Just the embalming side. Didn't you know I assisted an undertaker once in Kansas City? What's that? I interrupted sharply, for something out in the darkness had jumped. Does a stray steer scare you like that tonight? Now, that embalming trip give me a notion I'll work out some time. What do you miss worst in Camp Grub? Eggs, said I immediately. That's you. Well, I'm going to invent embalmed eggs somehow. Hope you do, said I. Do you believe I'm going to get sheep this time? It's all I came for. You'll get sheep, Scipio declared, or I'll lose my job at Sunk Creek Ranch. Judge Henry had lent him to me for my hunting trip. Of course I'd not call em embalmed eggs, he finished. Condensed, I suggested, like the milk. Do you suppose the man really did go to Idaho? They do go there, and they go everywheres else that's convenient. Canada, San Francisco, some Indian reservation. He'll never get found. 
I expect, like as not, he killed the Confederate along with the victims. It's claimed there was a cook along, too. He's never showed up. It's a bad proposition to get tangled up with a murder. I sat thinking of this and that and the other. That was a superior lie about the lights on the steer's horns, I remarked next. Scipio shoved one hand under his hat and scratched his head. They say that's so, he said. I've heard it. Never seen it. But tell you, he ain't got brains enough to invent a thing like that. And he's too conceited to tell another man's lie. Well, I pondered, there's St. Elmo's fire. That's genuine. Scipio desired to know about this, and I told him of the lights that are seen at the ends of the yards and spars of ships at sea in atmospheric conditions of a certain kind. He let me also tell him of the old Breton sailor belief that these lights are the souls of dead sailormen come back to pray for the living in peril. But he stopped me soon when I attempted to speak of charged thunderclouds and the positive and the negative and conductors and Leyden jars. Uh, that's a heap worse than the other stuff about yellow and blue, he objected. Here's Broke Axel. Do you say camp here or make it into the station? Well, if that filthy woman still keeps the station. She does. She's a buckskin son of a gun. We'll camp here, Professor. Scipio had first called me by this name before he knew me in Colonel Cyrus Jones's eating palace in Omaha, intending no compliment by the term. Since that day, many adventures and surprises shared together had changed it to a word of familiar regard. He used it sparingly, and, as a rule, only upon occasions of discomfort or mischance. You'll get sheep, Professor, he now repeated in a voice of reassurance, and went his way to attend to the horses for the night. The earth had dried, the plenteous stars were bright in the sky, we needed no tent over us, and merely spread my rubber blanket and the buffalo robes, and so, beneath light covers, waited for sleep to the gurgle, sluggish and musical, of Broke Axel. Scipio's sleep was superior to mine, coming sooner and burying him deeper from the world of wakefulness. Thus he did not become aware of a figure sitting by our little fire of embers, whose presence penetrated my thinner sleep until my eyes opened and I saw it. Such things give me a shock, which I suppose must be fear, but it is not at all fear of the mind. I lay still, drawing my gun stealthily into a good position, and thinking what were best to do. But he must have heard me. Let me show you sheep. What's that? It was Scipio starting to life and action. Don't shoot Timberline, I said. He's come to show us sheep. Scipio sat staring, stupefied, at the figure by the embers, and then he slowly turned his head round to me, and I thought he was going to pour out one of those long, corrosive streams of comment that usually burst from him when he was enough surprised. But he was too much surprised. His name is Henry Hall, he said to me very mildly. I've just remembered it. The patient figure by the embers rose. There's sheep in the Washiki needles, lots and lots and lots. 
I seen him myself in the spring. I can take you right to him. Don't make me go back and be stock tender. He recited all this in a sort of rising wail until the last sentence in which the entreaty shook his voice. Washiki Needles is the nearest likely place, muttered Scipio. If you don't get any, you needn't to pay me any, urged the boy, and he stretched out an arm to mark his words and his prayer. We sat in our beds, and he stood waiting by the embers to hear his fate, while nothing made a sound but broke Axel. Why not? I said. We were talking of a third man. A man, said Scipio. Yes. I can cook. I can pack. I can cook good bread, and I can show you sheep. And if I don't, you needn't to pay me a cent, entreated the boy. He sure means what he says, Scipio commented. It's your trip. Thus it was I came to hire Timberline. Don showed him in the same miserable rags he wore on my first sight of him at the corral, and these proved his sole visible property of any kind. He didn't possess a change of anything. He hadn't brought away from Rongus so much as a handkerchief tied up with things inside it. Most wonderful of all, he owned not even a horse, and in that country, in those days, five dollars worth of horse was within the means of almost anybody. But he was not unclean, as I had feared. He washed his one set of rags and his skin and bones body by the light of the first sunrise on Broke Axle, and this proved a not too rare habit with him, which made all the more strange his neglect to throw the rags away and wear the new clothes I bought and gave him as we passed through Lander. Timberline, said Scipio the next day, if Anthony Comstock came up in this country, he'd jail you. Who's he? screamed Timberline sharply. He lives in New York, and he's again the nude. That costume of yours is getting close on to what they claim Venus and other immoral Greek statuary used to wear. After this, Timberline put on the lander clothes, but on one of his wash days we discovered that he kept the rags next his skin. This clinging to such worthless things seemed probably the result of destitution, of having had nothing day after day and month after month. His poor little pay at Rongus, which we gradually learned they had always got back from him by one trick or another, was less than half what I now gave him for his services, and I offered to advance him some of this at places where it could be spent but he told me to keep it until he had earned the whole of it. Yet he did not seem a miser. His willingness to help at anything in camp was unchanging, and a surer test of not being stingy was the indifference he showed to losing or winning the little sums we played at cards for after supper and before bed. The score I kept in my diary showed him to belong to the losing class. His help in camp was real, not merely well-meant. The curious haze or blur in which his mind had seemed to be at the corral cleared away, and he was worth his wages. What he had said he could do, he did, and more. And yet, when I looked at him, he was somehow forever pitiful. "'Do you think anything is the matter with him?' I asked Scipio. 
Only just one thing. He'd oughtn't never to have been born. Well, that probably applies to several million people all over this planet. Sure, assented Scipio cheerfully. He was not one of these. He's so eternally silent, I said presently. A man don't ask to be born, pursued Scipio. Parents can't stop to think of that, I returned. Hmm, mused Scipio. Somebody or something has taken good care they'll never. We continued along the trail, engrossed in our several thoughts, and I could hear Timberline behind us with the pack-horses singing, If that I was where I would be, then should I be where I am not. Our mode of travel had changed at Fort Washiki. There we had left the wagon and put ourselves and our baggage upon horses, because we should presently be in a country where wagons could not go. I suppose that more advice is offered and less taken than of any other free commodity in the world. Before I had settled where to go for sheep, nobody could tell me where to go. Now almost every one advised some other than the place I had chosen. Washiki Needles, they would repeat unfavorably, Union Peaks nearer, or You go up Jakey's Fork, or Red Creek's half as far and twice as many sheep, or Last spring I seen a ram up Dinwiddie's big as a horse. This discouragement strung along our road had small weight with me, because it was just the idle talk of those dingy loafers of the western cabin and saloon, who never hunted, never did anything but sit still, and assume to know your own business better than you knew it yourself. It was only once that the vigorous words of some bypasser on a horse caused Scipio and me to discuss dropping the Washiki needles in favor of the country at the head of Green River. We were below Bull Lake at the forking of the ways. None of us had ever been in the Green River country, while Timberline evidently knew the Washiki Needles well, and this was what finally decided us. But Timberline had been thrown into the strangest agitation by our uncertainty. He had said nothing, but he walked about, coming near, going away, sitting down, getting up, instead of placidly watching his fire and cooking until at last I told him not to worry, that wherever we went I should keep him and pay him in any case. And then he spoke. I didn't hire to go to Green River. What have you got against Green River? I hired to go to the Washiki Needles. His agitation left him immediately upon our turning our faces in that direction. What had so disturbed him we could not guess. But later that day Scipio rode up to me, bursting with a solution. He had visited a freighter's camp a hundred yards off the road in the sagebrush—we were following the Embar trail—and the freighter, upon learning our destination, had said he supposed we were after the reward. It did not get through my head at once, but when Scipio reminded me of the yellow poster and the murder, it got through fast enough. The body had been found on Owl Creek, and the middle fork of Owl Creek headed among the Washiki Needles. There might be another body, the other eastern man who had never been seen since, and there was a possible third, the confederate, the cook. 
Many held it was the murderer's best policy to destroy him as well. Owl Creek had yielded no more bodies after that one first found. Perhaps the victims had been killed separately. Before starting on their last journey in this world, they had let it get out somewhere down on the railroad that they carried money. This was their awful mistake, conducting death to them in the shape of the man who had offered himself as their guide, and whom they had engaged without more knowledge of him than he disclosed to them himself. Red Dog was his name in Colorado, where he was wanted. The all-day sitters and drinkers in the cabins along the road had their omniscient word as to this also. They could have told those Easterners not to hire Red Dog. So now we had Timberline accounted for, satisfactorily to ourselves. He was after the reward. We never said this to him, but we worked out his steps from the start. As stock-tender at Rongus, he had seen the yellow poster pasted up, and had read it, day after day, with its promise of what to him was a fortune. To Owl Creek he could not go alone, having no money to buy a horse, and being afraid, too, perhaps. If he could only find that missing dead man, or the two of them, he might find a clue. My sheep-hunt had dropped like a providence into his hand. We got across the hot country where rattlesnakes were thick, where neither man lived nor water ran, and came to the first lone habitation in this new part of the world, a new set of mountains, a new set of creeks. A man stood at the door watching us come. "'Know him?' I asked Scipio. "'I've heard of him,' said Scipio. "'He married a squaw.' We were now opposite the man's door. "'You folks after the reward?' said he. "'After mountain sheep,' I replied, somewhat angry. We camped some ten miles beyond him, and the next day crossed a low range, stopping near another cabin for noon. They gave us a quantity of berries they had picked, and we gave them some potatoes. "'After the reward?' said one of them as we rode away, and I contradicted him with temper. "'Lie to him, said Scipio. Say yes.' He developed his theory of truthfulness. It was not real falsehood to answer as you chose questions people had no right to ask. In fact, the only real lie was when you denied something wrong you had done. And I've told hundreds of them, too, he concluded pensively. Something had begun to weigh upon our cheerfulness in this new country. The reward dogged us, and we saw strange actions of people twice. We came upon some hot sulphur springs, and camped near them, with a wide stream between us and another camp. Those people, two men and two women, emerged from their tent, surveyed us, nodded to us, and settled down again. Next morning they had vanished. We could see the gleam of empty bottles on the bank opposite where they had been. And once, riding out of a little valley, we sighted close to us through cottonwoods a horseman leading a pack-horse out of the next little valley. He did not nod to us, but pursued his parallel course some three hundred yards off, until a rise in the ground hid him for a while. When this was past, he was no longer where he should have been, abreast of us, but far to the front, 
galloping away. This was our last sight of him. We spoke of these actions a little. Did these people suspect us, or were they afraid we suspected them? All we ever knew was that suspicion had now gradually been wafted through the whole air and filled it like a coming change of weather. I could no longer look at a rock or a clump of trees without a disagreeable thought. Was something or somebody behind the clump of trees and the rock? Would they come out or wait until we had passed? This influence seemed to gather even more thick and chill as we turned up the middle fork of Owl Creek. Magpies, that I had always liked to watch and listen to, had become part of the general increasing uncomfortableness, and their cries sounded no longer cheerful, but harsh and unfriendly. As we rode up the narrowing canyon of Owl Creek, the Washiki Needles, those twin spires of naked rock, rose into view high above the clustered mountain tops, closing the canyon in, shutting out the setting sun. But the nearness of my goal and my sheep hunt brought me no elation. Those miserable questions about reward, the strange conduct of those unknown people, dwelt in my mind. I saw in memory the floating image of that poster. I wondered if I, in my clambering for sheep, should stumble upon signs, evidence, an old camp, ashes, tent pegs, or the horrible objects that had come here alive and never gone hence. I could not drive these fancies from me amid the austere silence of the place where it had happened. He can talk when he wants to. It made me start, this remark of Scipio's as he rode behind me. What has Timberline been telling you? Nothing, but he's been telling himself a heap of something. In the rear of our single-file party, Timberline rode, and I could hear him rambling on in a rising and falling voice. He ceased once or twice while I listened, breaking out again as if there had been no interruption. It was a relief to have a practical trouble threatening us. If the boy was going off his head, we should have something real to deal with. But when I had chosen a camp and we were unsaddling and throwing the packs on the ground, Timberline was in his customary silence. After supper I walked off with Scipio where our horses were. Do you think he's sick? I asked. I don't know, said Scipio, and that was all we said, for we liked the subject too little to pursue it. Next morning I was over at the creek washing before breakfast. The sun was coming in through the open east end of our canyon, the shaking leaves of the quaking asp twinkled in the blithe air, and a night's sleep had brought me back to a much robuster mood. I had my field glasses with me, and far up, far up among patches of snow and green grass, I could see sheep on both sides of the valley. "'So you sleep well?' said Scipio. "'Like a log. You?' like another. Somebody in camp didn't. I turned and looked at Timberline, cooking over at camp. Looking for the horses early this morning, pursued Scipio. I found his tracks up and down all over everywheres. Perhaps he has found the reward. Scipio laughed and I laughed. 
It was the only thing to do. How much had the boy walked in the darkness? I think I'll take him with us, I then said. I'd rather have him with us. During breakfast we discussed which hill we should ascend, and, this decided on, I was about to tell Timberline his company was expected, when he saved me the trouble by requesting to be allowed to go himself. His usually pale, harmless eyes were full of some sort of glitter. Did his fingers feel that they were about to clutch the reward? That was the 30th of August. A quarter of a century and more has passed. My age is double what it was. But today, on any 30th of August, if I think of the date, the Washiki needles stand in my eyes, twin spires of naked rock, and I see what happened there. The three of us left camp. It was warm summer in the valley by the streaming channel of our creek, and the quiet day smelled of the pines. We should not have taken horses. They served us so little in such a climb as that. On the level top, our legs and breathing got relief, and far away, up the next valley, were sheep. This second top we reached, but they were gone to the next beyond, where we saw them across a mile or so of space. In the bottom below us ran the north fork of Owl Creek, like a fine white wire drawn through the distant green of the pines. Up in this world peaks and knife-edged ridges bristled to our north, away and away beyond sight. We now made a new descent and ascent, but had no luck, and by three o'clock we stood upon a lofty, wet, slipping ledge that fell away on three sides, sheer or unbroken, to the summer and the warmth that lay thousands of feet below. Here it began to be very cold, and to the west the sky now clotted into advancing lumps of thick thundercloud, black, weaving and merging heavily and swiftly in a fierce rising wind. We got away from this promontory to follow a sheep trail, and as we went along the backbone of the mountain, two or three valleys off to the right, long black streamers let down from the cloud. They hung and wavered mistily close over the pines that did not grow within a thousand feet of our high level. I gazed at the streamers and discerned water, or something, pouring down in them. Above our heads the day was still serene, and we had a chance to make camp without a wedding. This I suggested we should do, since the day's promise of sport had failed. No, no, said Timberline hoarsely. See there, we can get em. We're above em. They don't see us. I saw no sheep where he pointed, but I saw him. His eyes looked red hot. He insisted the sheep had merely moved behind a rock, and so we went on. The strip of clear sky narrowed, and gray bars of rain were falling between us and the pieces of woodland that, but a moment since, had been unblurred. Blasts of frozen wind rose about us, causing me to put on my rubber coat before my fingers should grow too numb to button it. 
we moved forward to a junction of the knife ridges upon which a second storm was hastening from the southwest over deep valleys that we turned our backs upon and kept slowly urging our horses near the great washakie needle we stopped at the base of its top pinnacle glad to reach this slanting platform of comparative safety no sheep were anywhere but i had ceased to care about sheep jutting stones all but their upturned points and edges buried in the ground made this platform a rough place to pick one's way over but this was a trifle from these jutting points a humming sound now began to rise a sort of droning which at first ran about here and there among them with a flickering aeolian capriciousness then settled to a steady chord the influence of the electric storm had encircled us we all looked at each other but turned immediately again to watch the portentous sublime scene at the edge of our platform the world fell straight a thousand feet down to a valley like the bottom of a cauldron on the far side of the cauldron the air like a stroke of magic became thick white and through it leaped the first lightning a blinding violet an arm of the storm reached over to us the cauldron sank from sight in a white sea and the hail cut my face so i bowed it down mixed with the hail fell softer flakes which as they touched the earth glowed for a moment like tiny bulbs and went out on the ground i saw what looked like a tangle of old human footprints in the hard-crusted mud these the pellets of the swarming hail soon filled this tempest of flying ice struck my body my horse raced over the ground like spray on the crest of breaking waves and drove me to dismount and sit under the horse huddled together even as he was huddled against the fury and the biting pain of the hail from under the horse's belly i looked out upon a chaos of shooting hissing white through which in every direction lightning flashed and leaped while the fearful crashes behind the curtain of the hail sounded as if i should see a destroyed world when the curtain lifted the place was so flooded with electricity that i gave up the shelter of my horse and left my rifle on the ground and moved away from the vicinity of these points of attraction of my companions i had not thought i now noticed them crouching separately much as i crouched so i sat i know not how long chilled from spine to brisket my stiff boots growing wet my discarded gloves a pulp like my hat and melted hail trickling from the rubber coat to my legs at length the hailstones fell more gently the near view opened revealing white winter on all save the steep gray needles the thick white curtain of hail departed slowly the hail where i was fell more scantily still it was slowly going away the great low prowling cloud we should presently be left in peace unscathed though it was at its tricks still its brimming spilling over electricity was now playing a new prank 
mocking my ears with crackling noises as of a campfire somewhere on earth or in air while i listened curiously to these my eye fell on timberline he was turning leaning crouching listening too when he crouched it was to peer at those old footprints i had noticed there was something frightful in the sight of his face shrunk to half its size and i called to reassure him and beckoned that it was all right that we were all right i doubt if he saw or heard me something somewhere near my head set up a delicate sound it seemed in my hat i rose and began to wander bewildered by this the hail was now falling very fine and gentle when suddenly I was aware of its stinging behind my ear more sharply than it had done at all. I turned my face in its direction and found its blows harmless, while the stinging in my ear grew sharper. The hissing continued close to my head whenever I walked. It resembled the little watery escape of gas from a charged bottle whose cork is being slowly drawn. I was now more really disturbed than I had been during the storm's worst, and meeting Scipio, who was also wandering, I asked if he felt anything. He nodded uneasily, when suddenly, and I know not why, I snatched my hat off. The hissing was in the brim, and it died out as I looked at the leather binding and the stitches. I expected to see some insect there, or some visible reason for the noise. I saw nothing, but the pricking behind my ear had also stopped. Then I knew my wet hat had been charged like a laden jar with electricity. Scipio, who had watched me, jerked his hat off also. "'Lights on steer-horns are nothing to this,' I began, when a piercing scream cut me short." Timberline, at the other side of the stony platform, had clapped his hands to his head. "'Take off your hat!' I shouted. But he had fallen on his knees and was ripping, tearing his clothes. He plucked and dragged at the old rags next his skin. Then he flung his hands to the sky. "'Oh, God!' he screamed. "'Oh, Jesus! Keep him off me! Oh, save me!' His glaring face now seemed fixed on something close to him. "'Leave me go! I didn't push you over! You know he made me push you! I meant nothing! I knowed nothing! I was only the cook! Why, I liked you! You was kind to me! Oh, why did I ever go? There! Take it back! There's your money! He give it to me when you was dead to make me hush up! There! I never spent a cent of it!' He tore from his rags the hush-money that had been sewed in them, and scattered the fluttering bills in the air. Then once more he clapped his hands to his head as he kneeled. "'Take off your hat!' I cried again. He rose, stared wildly, and screamed, "'I tell you, you've got it all! It's all he gave to me!' The next moment he plunged into the cauldron, a thousand feet below. On the following day we found the two bodies, that second victim the country had wondered about, and the boy. 
and we counted the money, the guilty money that had for a while closed the boy's innocent mouth. Five ten-dollar bills. Not much to hide murder for, not much to draw a tortured soul back to the scene of another's crime. The true murderer was not caught, and no one ever claimed the reward. End of chapter 4